This is the Home Health Revealed podcast. Hear stories from real industry leaders discussing topics affecting the ever-changing industries of home health, hospice, and palliative care. Welcome to the Home Health Revealed podcast and this special episode where we collaborate with the Association of Home Care Coding and Compliance, AHCC, for their monthly 30-minute session, a panel discussion on a crucial topic that has been requested by some of our listeners. Today, we delve into the realm of hospice coding, a subject that's close to the hearts of those dedicated to home health and hospice care. Before we dive into our discussion, I'd like to highlight the OCTALK podcast, which is an ongoing live event hosted by Decision Health. This podcast offers invaluable insights on coding and credentialing FAQs, serves as a vital resource for home health and hospice agencies. Stay tuned until the end of this episode, or you can check out the show notes for a link where listeners can download the 2024 Home Health Catalog with a 15% discount coupon. A big shout out to our partners at Decision Health for their support. Proper coding and compliance in hospice care are so important. Hospice coders often face unique challenges in accurately documenting patient care and ensuring compliance with regulations. Challenges like complex diagnoses and treatments in end-of-life care require precise coding to reflect the level of care provided Ensuring accurate coding not only impacts reimbursement, but also plays a crucial role in delivering quality care to patients. So, without further commentary, I will turn it over to Jan Milliman of OCK and the episode on Diagnosis Coding for Hospice. And now I'd like to introduce our industry guests for this episode. We have Kelly Cavanaugh, RN, HCSD, HCSH, HCSO, BCHHC, OCK Advisory Board Member and Quality Assurance Specialist for Riverside Home Health and Hospice, a division of the Pennant Group with us on the call today. Kelly has been in home health and hospice for 30 years. She's worked as an agency owner and administrator, DON, done billing claims, been a field nurse, done marketing, served as a director of education, QAPI, an OASIS review, and coding. And we also have Nanette Minton, RN, HCSD, HCSH, HCSO, OCK advisory board member, and senior clinical coding manager with Mac Legacy on the call today. Nanette has served in a leadership capacity for over 20 years, holding a variety of roles in the home care and hospice industry, including clinical, administrative, consulting, education, and agency startup and development. Thanks so much for joining us today, Kelly and Nanette. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Let's kick things off with a couple of poll questions. So um, we're doing quiz questions again this time. Um, those worked out really nicely last last episode, so I'm excited to try this again. So our first question for our listeners today is, is senile degeneration of the brain, G31.1, appropriate as a terminal diagnosis? And our answer options are yes or no. So I'm letting this, okay, I see folks are voting now. I'm going to give it another few seconds to let folks think about this and get their answers in, and then I'll move on to the next question. 
All right, votes are still coming in. I need some like jaunty uh, poll question music or something for the background for these. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Let's see. Okay, yeah, folks are still voting, so I don't want to cut it too short. Okay, it looks like things are starting to slow down. So I'm going to close this poll out and then we'll ask the second question. All right, and our other question for today is which diagnoses need to be included when coding hospice claims? And your answer options are only the terminal diagnoses and related comorbidities or all known clinically significant diagnoses. And folks are still voting, so we'll give it a few seconds to get those answers in. All right, it's coming a little speedier this time. I think it's starting to slow down. All right, I'm going to close out those polls and we'll take a look at the answers a little later in this episode. All right, let's move on and get the discussion started. Listeners, if you have any questions for our panelists today, please go ahead and ask them in the chat pane and we'll try to get to as many questions as we can. Our topic today has been suggested by several listeners, so I wanna say a thank you to those of you who wrote in to ask us to do a session on hospice coding. Nanette and Kelly, I'm going to turn this segment over to you. I'll let you know if we receive any questions from our listeners, and I can page through the, uh, the slides. So just let me know if I need to advance. Okay, thank you, Jan. All right, today we're going to talk about hospice coding, and we're just going to kind of hit some, hit some highlights and talk a little bit about hospice and how the coding is a little bit um, different shall we say. It's still the same coding. It's, we still have the same coding rules and guidelines and the coding clinic advice and all that is the same, but there's some nuances that we have to talk about when we're, when we're dealing with hospice that are different than dealing with home care and home care coding. So the primary terminal diagnosis is probably the biggest single item that is drastically different than home health because the primary terminal diagnosis is the diagnosis that is most contributing to the terminal prognosis of the individual patient. The primary diagnosis also has to be the same on the CTI, the Certificate of Terminal Illness, the Hospice Plan of Care, and the UBO4 claim form. So that's a little different than in home health. So they, they do have to match. It has to be the same across the three items. And codes for signs and symptoms, as opposed to diagnosis, they are acceptable for reporting purposes when related to, when the, you don't have a definitive diagnosis um, that's confirmed by the provider, but generally, generally, we should not use symptoms or signs as a primary diagnosis for supporting hospice terminal prognosis and care. So if you think about that, you, you want to get as specific as possible and have an actual diagnosis, if it's at all possible, to support that terminal prognosis of your individual. Okay, next slide. So then we have related conditions. So related conditions is defined as um, conditions that are any physical or mental uh, diagnosis that are related to or caused by 
either the terminal diagnosis or the medications used to manage the terminal illness. So these are things that are related to that terminal diagnosis, whatever that, whatever that is. So we want to for sure add on the codes for any related conditions that the patient has that go along with that terminal diagnosis. Next slide. We, we did have a question that kind of relates to this. So mm -hmm. I'm gonna okay. pop in with it real quick. Um, how does CMS know whether or not a hospice diagnosis is related to the terminal condition? They're, well, they're not going to know from your claim, from just the list of diagnosis, but those kinds are the kinds of things that you're going to write up in your narrative notes, uh, most specifically the narrative note that ends up on your certificate of terminal illness. That's where you're going to have that narrative that kind of explains exactly um, your clinical picture of what's going on with your patient. So all those things that are related, you're going to kind of summarize in that note. Yeah, and I'm I'm going to jump in here um, just for a second, Kelly, also, and just add that, you know, one of the things, too, that um, in addition to that, on that CTI, um, and, and we'll get to some of this, which is, you know, this is some of the gray area that, you know, is looming over the hospice industry, I will say, that's very confusing, uh, because what one hospice may consider related, another hospice might not. So you have to be very appropriate with um, your IDG. When you admit a patient, you talk about what's happening, um, what are the things that are contributing to the decline of the patient. So it's not necessarily always related to that one diagnosis, but the bigger picture of things. And then really the medical director should, or the attending physician should document the things that are unrelated after that team you know, discusses those things. Um, and of course, if the family requests an addendum and those kind of all go hand in hand and really should uh, match. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later, but I just wanted to kind of mention to make sure that the, the medical director's documenting um, what would be considered unrelated. Um, and I'll, I'll give a, a couple examples whenever we um, get to that other section. So sorry, Kelly, I just wanted to jump no, in on that. That's great. I'm, I'm so glad you did. But yeah, we will we will discuss a little bit further um, down the line some things that'll make it more clear. <laughs> Great, thank you okay. both. You bet. Next slide. Okay, so then we're talking about secondary or comorbid diagnosis, and this is, you know, hospice will report all diagnosis identified um, in your comprehensive assessment on your hospice claims, and these would be things that you're going to pull off of an H and P. Um, you know, the physician's um, diagnosis, what he said is going on with the patient. So this would be mental health disorders, any conditions that would affect your plan of care. So this is kind of that all-encompassing list, if you will, of all the things that could be going on. And what you're doing by adding all of these things on, um, not only is it technically a requirement that you add all diagnoses that are identified for this patient, but you're painting that clinical picture and all of those things are helping to support, you know, why your patient is terminal, why do they need so much care, what's going on with them, and all the things that are going to contribute to the decline of the patient. So it, it really helps to support that terminal prognosis and to show that holistic patient, picture of your patient. Um, and then again, if the hospice patient has diagnoses that are unrelated to terminal, you still would want to, to document those and code those and have those on your claim. But that's where you would want to point out that maybe those are the unrelated um, diagnosis to, that, you know, ter to the terminal 
um, and that you might uh, might not want to be necessarily um, focusing on um, with your hospice care. Next slide. Awesome, thanks Kelly. I'll uh, pick it up from here. Um, so just a little bit about that um, primary and secondary diagnoses, just to clarify since we had the question and, and I'm sure one question can create more questions related to that. Um, so a couple of examples and, and you know, there's no way, um, you know, we need about an eight hour session to do um, all of the training for sure, um, plus that. Um, but when you think about, I'll give you an example. So let's say a patient was referred for um, congestive heart failure. Um, you know, the patient also has hypertension, CKD, they have diabetes. Um, and so we know, we know what that coding sequence is going to look like from, you know, if you're a, a coder, you're going to code the hypertensive uh, chronic kidney disease with heart failure code and then add the heart failure, you know, and then um, go, so on down the line. Well, technically, the diabetes is not related, but we have to keep it in that same sequencing um, from that. Um, and so, you know, that's one of the challenges is because sometimes the sequencing guidelines, you know, we think, oh, is that related? It's not related. Well, just because it might follow a sequencing guideline in that example, doesn't mean that it's related or that hospice should be responsible for paying for diabetes medications. So, um, let me give you um, a couple of things, and this is this is not required. It's not an industry standard, um, but um, to me, when you are doing your coding for hospice, it makes more sense, and it can be helpful when you on that claim if you code all the related diagnoses first, and then put like a Z51.5 code that encounter for palliative care. It's kind of a, a a stopping point, just a period, and then you can list your unrelated diagnoses below. And like I said, um, it's not black and white. Um, it's certainly a discussion that needs to be had with the, the IDG and the medical director. Um, so uh, another thing to think about though, um, hospice manages lots of symptoms. So if pain from, um, you know, a lot of arthritis pain, um, is contributing to the patient being bed bound, but that may not be their primary terminal diagnosis, hospice is still gonna take care of the pain issue. So pain, anxiety, constipation, sleep disorders, all of those things, when you think about the symptoms that are being managed, um, that is you know, what needs to be coded as related. And again, it's not always gonna be a black and white decision. Um, I'll give you another example patient referred for end-stage COPD, uh, because of the COPD and the high doses of steroids, the patient now has secondary diabetes. In that case, it would be very appropriate for hospice to be responsible for uh, the conditions related to the secondary diabetes up to and including the medications because it was caused from that primary terminal condition. So many things can be related to that initial diagnosis, uh, but let's say a patient has um, dementia, they have a UTI, they recently fell and fractured their right hip. Um, that hip fracture is probably greatly hindering and contributing to the decline. Uh, so, you know, although technically a fracture 
is not related to dementia. Again, you've got to think about the bigger picture and what's happening with the patient. So anyway, I hope that that is at least helpful and provides a little bit of guidance on that. So can a diagnosis change happen in hospice? And, and yes, it absolutely can. Um, one of the things that is challenging is sometimes people think they can code the hospice, start a care once, never look at it again. Um, and, and, and so you have to be careful about that. There may be wounds that need to be on there that are healed or new wounds that weren't there when the start of care occurred. Um, maybe the patient now requires oxygen or has other things that need to be added to that to support that diagnosis. But if you need to make a diagnosis change, um, it can be done anytime, uh, but should be documented in the medical record along for the rationale. I always think it's best practice to have an order or very clearly outlined on the IDG um, that would be electronically signed by that physician to change that terminal diagnosis um, and to determine that date. So, you know, the date that that order is written should be the date that that change is effective on the claim. And so that can get a little tricky as well. Um, okay, next slide, Jim. So symptom coding guidelines. Again, as Kelly pointed out, uh, we don't want to code any symptoms inherent to the disease process, um, but there are times when adding those symptom codes can support the coding. So just like in home care, um, you know, we're creating a set of codes to support that episode of care we're creating a set of codes that tells the story about why this patient is appropriate for hospice. Um, and so um, on this next slide, we have just a couple of things that you can add, um, diagnosis uh, codes that support the terminal prognosis. Um, so these would be things like uh, incontinence, bowel and bladder incontinence, difficulty swallowing. Um, let's say you have a patient who has CHF, we wouldn't code the edema, obviously, because that is inherent to the disease process. But if they have um, ascites or um, generalized edema and asarca everywhere, then we definitely want to add that because that is, that is a different picture and not every CHF patient has that. Think about anorexia, um, just if the patient is no longer eating um, or drinking, are there changes in respiration? Are there changes in skin, uh, weight loss, cachexia? Are they now wheelchair or bed bound? Do they use oxygen? That type of thing. So think about the picture that's being painted um, by those particular diagnoses and that would help for sure. So a couple of things that are still problematic areas in hospice coding. Um, are the, are the use of those symptom codes inherent to the disease process? So um, as we talked about, we, we would want to um, not add those. Um, a couple of other examples would be a COPD patient and having you know, shortness of breath. Well, that would, be, that would be an expected symptom with a COPD patient. Um, another big problematic area is not uh, correctly capturing dementia. And I'll pause on that till this next slide. We'll talk about that. The incorrect use of combination codes, particularly uh, hypertension, CKD, and hypertensive heart failure. So many times when a referral is made, the um, referring physician and or um, other 
practitioner might think, well, I referred them for congestive heart failure, that needs to be the first diagnosis on the claim. What they may not understand is that the ICD-10 coding guidelines were mandated by HIPAA, um, and those are across all settings, including outpatient. So we have to follow those sequencing guidelines. And so sometimes it's just explaining those things um, to, the, to the referral sources and making sure they understand that if they ever question that. There's a lot of uh, questions sometimes about primary and secondary cancers. Uh, I have seen many times where um, a patient is referred for um, secondary cancers that have come back after the primary was resolved 10 years ago. And I'll see that that primary, let's say it was a breast cancer that the patient had a mastectomy and um, everything was resolved. The patient was in remission. 10 years later, we have bone and brain cancer. And I will see where they will put the breast cancer as primary when that's not really appropriate unless the breast has reoccurred um, you know, or is in another location, uh, but still that primary site. So it, it's more appropriate then in that case, we would want to code those secondary cancers. Again, think what is the actual diagnosis that's going to contribute to the decline, you know, followed by a history of breast cancer, that kind of thing. Uh, a lack of understanding of coding end-stage liver or heart failure. Um, again, just knowing um, what uh, what to put. Sometimes with liver patients, you might have cirrhosis, but then you might have documented also failure of the liver. And so you want to add all of those and watch your sequencing um, and your excludes one, excludes two, but just make sure you're adding all of those diagnoses. Um, as well as heart failure, um, you know, there's, there's a code for stage D um, or, um, you know, in stage heart failure. But we cannot code that even in hospice unless the documentation specifically outlines that. So we want to be careful about that. Another thing I see in hospice is uh, the use of acute CVA versus sequela or late effect. Uh, a patient who has had a stroke two years ago and is bedbound with maybe right-sided hemiplegia, dysphagia, has had a lot of weight loss, multiple infections, um, rapidly declining. Uh, in that case, we're not going to use the acute CVA code uh, because this is something that is a light effect that it had previously. The only time it would be appropriate to use an acute CVA code in hospice is if the patient had a massive stroke. Many times those end up turning into um, um, you know, cerebral bleeds, and, and, and truly the patient never regains consciousness, and they're only, um, they only have a few days, so they have a definite, um, you know, encephalopic changes and things that you have to really, uh, really document. So this is not the patient who had a stroke three months, six months, a year ago that's declining. This would be the acute CVA, and that's the only time that would be appropriate to use in the hospice setting for that. Okay, for dementia, the dilemma of dementia. Um, so as we finish up our conversation here, uh, I want to just clarify, uh, we know dementia is still unacceptable as a primary terminal diagnosis for hospice. Um, we know 
if they say senile dementia, we also know if they say vascular dementia that is excluded as a terminal diagnosis for hospice. So what are we as providers to do? Um, and so definitely we wanna ask that physician practitioner, you want to see if, you know, are there neurologist records? Are there other things that we can look at? Um, and hopefully there are, but sometimes there, there is not. Um, so uh, when you think about vascular dementia, um, that's usually a multi-infarct, uh, a type of dementia that's occurred because of vascular changes in the brain after lots of strokes. So um, hopefully you can reach back out if vascular dementia is stated and ask, okay, do you, do you know what type of vascular disease is causing, uh, cerebrovascular disease is causing this? Have they had strokes or do we just need to use other vascular um, you know, uh, other cerebrovascular disease followed by the vascular dementia. Uh, and so those are questions that you have to discuss with the medical director and or the referring physician. Now, I realize there's the charts. They refer you, the patient's 92. She's never had any testing. They know that she's had dementia for 15 years, but nothing has ever been done. In those particular cases, if the physician is not comfortable stating this is, you know, a, an Alzheimer's type dementia um, or some other specified type of dementia, we can use that G31.1 uh, senile degeneration of the brain. But I will tell you, this is not to be used in lieu of another specified type of uh, dementia. So if Alzheimer's is listed, that's what you need to go with versus the G31.1. Um, in addition, all the qualifications that a patient must have in order to be eligible for hospice have to be met. You can't just use G31.1 because they don't qualify under uh, other dementia types. You know, they still have to be a 7A or beyond on that fast scale, have infections, um, showing a rapid recent decline. So there's a lot of things that we need to capture um, for sure on that. Okay, as I finish this non-allowed primary diagnosis codes, um, again, just to reiterate, we know this, this has been some time, uh, but the, these are gonna be returned to the provider, uh, RTP for debility, failure to thrive, unspecified dementia. Um, and again, we know those can't, we know we get referrals for those, but they cannot be primary. So you've got to have those conversations um, for sure to be able to reach out and understand um, because you want to be able to support that claim and support that that patient does indeed have a terminal diagnosis. So anyway, thank you so much. Jan, did we have any other questions? We did have a couple come in. Um, one goes back a little bit to the um, physician documentation. If the physician documents specific diagnoses or medications that are not related to the terminal condition, but doesn't say why they aren't related, does CMS ever notify the hospice or ask for further information? You know, that's a, that's a really good question. And Kelly, jump in if you have any thoughts on this. I have not seen them question that, to be honest, if the documentation is clear. Um, but I would think it would need to make sense. Um, so unless it's just something that doesn't make any clinical sense, I've not seen where CMS has reached back out um, and, and said, no, you should have covered this. Now, I know what CMS is looking at as well is they're looking at Part D coverage. You know, there's a lot of things going on over here that 
um, people might be getting paid for when they don't fully know patients on hospice care or patients getting medications that hospice should be paying for. So um, I have a feeling at some point, all of that, the stars are going to align and they may begin to question that. I've not seen it yet. Yeah, I agree. Thanks. And one other question. In the instances of heart failure as a terminal diagnosis, but the patient also has hypertension, should agencies list the terminal diagnosis as hypertensive heart failure or go with the heart failure and just add a note regarding the coding to the chart? And I think um, it says agencies slash CTI. Sure. Yeah. And that's so that's that's where the CTI may look a little bit different than the actual coding. But um, the coding guidelines, you're you're if CMS pulls that claim, you're not going to be you, you are not you are violating a regulation if you don't follow the coding guidelines. Um, so you need to code the hypertensive um, heart disease with heart failure. So that I 11.0 would need to be primary followed by that heart failure. Um, you know, and, and certainly you could put a note in there about coding guidelines uh, if, if you like, uh, but there, there shouldn't be a question because that's, that's just a, a coding, assumed coding rule. Kelly, what do you think about that? I, I, I think it would be fine either way as long as you have, you know, good documentation. I mean, that's, that's kind of the name of the game in just about any, any, industry in healthcare anymore it's it's all about the documentation so if you've got good solid documentation i think it, it comes down to semantics whether your your cti says chf or if it says hypertensive heart failure I, I think it's just semantics but again you just need to be sure that you have everything documented appropriately on your chart exactly and follow the follow those icd-10 coding guidelines yes Great. Thank you both. So much good stuff there. Let's take a quick look at our polls um, just to see how those panned out. So our first question was, is senile degeneration of the brain, G31.1, appropriate as a terminal diagnosis? And the correct answer for this was yes, um, which 60% of folks chose, so 40% picked no. Um, Kelly, Nanette, any thoughts about those responses? Well, I, it, it could have been perceived as a trick question. <laughs> I don't know. People may have been reading more into um, what we were asking because, I mean, just on the surface level, yes, it can be. But like Nanette pointed out, if you have Alzheimer's listed, then you would not be able to use senile degeneration of the brain as a terminal diagnosis in that situation. So, there may have been some things other people were reading into the question. <laughs> gotcha. All right. It's never, never easy in the Correct. world of coding. <laughs> All right. And we have our other poll. Let me share those results. And that question was, which diagnoses need to be included when coding hospice claims? And the correct answer was all known clinically significant diagnoses, which 76% of folks chose. Um, and we had 24% of people that chose only the terminal diagnoses and related comorbidities. Any thoughts on that one? Um, I'll, I'll take this one. So um, again, I think it's just understanding the where we're at in the industry because uh, coding is not tied to payment. And so sometimes it's just a matter of 
you know, we're getting it, get in there. We're going to just add all of our hospice codes and not worry about the other. And that's what we used to do. Um, but then CMS came back and said, no, you, you need to code all uh, diagnosis, whether they're related to that um, terminal diagnosis or not. So, and, and again, it's just, we're trying to get that education out there because again, not all uh, providers are aware of that. Thanks to our panelists for all the great information and thanks to all of you for tuning in. Thank you so much to AUK. Um, compliance with coding guidelines is essential for hospice agencies to maintain financial stability and uphold ethical standards in healthcare delivery. Agencies can enhance their patient outcomes and ensure transparency throughout the billing process. Um, we appreciate your continued support for Home Health Revealed. Thank you for subscribing and being a listener in this community. Remember to subscribe to Talk for regular updates on compliance, and we will see you next time.